specialist knowledge on a big scale with big bucks. With the kind of information coming soon to a brain near you, that may no longer be true anymore. Above all, perhaps, thanks to nano and biotechnology, which are going to take us through the most radical change in history when they move us from a culture of scarcity to a culture of abundance, which they will likely do in your lifetimes. A couple of simple examples, I'm sure you know it all, there is already a prototype spray-on solar energy nanomaterial. Paint it or spray it on your house, your car, your clothing, any object, and you just independently powered that object, whatever it is, even on a cloudy day. Use that sort of solar energy on floating platforms at sea to take hydrogen from water and carbon from the CO2 in the air and run these two gases over a catalyst and you get all the oil you might ever want. If, that is, you still need oil. Nanotechnology offers the possibility of a coin-sized battery lasting six months to run your electric car. Engineered bacteria will clean up polluted soil and make any water drinkable. Quantum supercomputers will work on chips the size of a moat of dust. Intelligent consumer articles of all kinds will inventory and manage your personal living. Medication targeting accurate to a single cell could cure most diseases. Fertilizers built into the seed will help to feed the world. All this and much more is likely within the next 40 years. But the clincher in nanotechnology seems to be that four years ago for the first time, a couple of Japanese guys built a molecule out of individual atoms. And there are already early designs for what is being called a personal nanofactory, a box in your house. You download the right atomic manipulating software and the machine manufactures atom by atom from the bottom up with unprecedented precision anything you want, using for feedstock the atoms to be found in air and dirt. It makes anything, light bulbs, clothing, gold, oil, water, food, weapons, solar power, the philosopher's stone, Star Trek. And what that could do to the world, that virtually free abundance of anything a person might want, will make the social effects of the Industrial Revolution look like child's play. Just a couple of questions that abundance will raise within your lifetime. When every individual has a machine, because sooner or later the hackers will get you the software for nothing, and the machine, of course, will make copies of itself. <laughs> when every individual has a machine, and every individual is virtually entirely self-sufficient, what need for government, or commerce, or nation-states, or globalization, or any of this old world we live in? Without trade, who needs businesses? So what happens to work? What do people do? What happens to our social dynamics? when thanks to targeted drugs, the vast majority of the population are over 65 and heading healthily towards 100 and something. 
If there is no need to go and grab raw materials, is that the end of war? But with no more international economic pressure to toe the line, will tin pot dictators with nano weapons go to war for some other reason? Will we look back fondly to the time when all we had to worry about was a few terrorists? When quantum computers built of DNA give every individual the entire store of human knowledge on a single knowledge web, will it be necessary to know anything anymore? And if not, what will you do with your brain? If that's some of what's coming, maybe we need to start rethinking about rethinking our institutions. Take a look instead at the prime key problem to solve. What will we do to replace representative democracy? 300 years ago, you find two fools with a horse and time to spare, and you send them out the dangerous, lousy, bandit-ridden roads to the capital to speak for you. Those roads are so unpleasant, they're not going to come back the next day and say, have you changed your political minds? Over a number of decades, we come to know these horse-owning adventurers as politicians, and their return journeys as elections. Today we have perfect roads and telecom up the yin-yang, and the same lumbering 18th century representative system, which is no longer representative because we are no longer a bunch of illiterate, out-of-touch peasants. Well, some of us. <laughs> what we need, among many other things, is perhaps to start thinking about electronic agent-mediated direct democracy and how to process the decisions made every second of every day by millions of empowered, electronically enfranchised individuals, each of whom is entirely resource autonomous. The end of ideology. Now in all this, at least the one thing I think you can be sure of, in terms of the future not being the same, is that whatever physical shape it takes, whatever infrastructure or lack of there is, one thing material abundance I don't think will automatically provide. And it'll be something which will give those individuals and communities who have it an edge over those who don't. And that's new ideas. The natural byproduct of every one of those 35 million I'd spoken to his eyes I thought you died alone A long, long time ago Oh no, not me I never lost control Your face to face With the man who sold the world And years I roamed 
subjects is the human soul. One of my favorite things to talk about when I'm just sitting around hanging out with my friends is that mystical part of you and me that makes us who we are and transcend even what science can tell us because what I know for sure, we are more than our bodies. If you have tuned into our television show in the last few months, you've likely heard me talk about what has, I, I would have to say at this point, I think has become a global phenomenon. A lot of people have been talking about the universal law of attraction. The truth is, there have been world philosophers for years who talked about the idea that we are more than our bodies and there's more to our lives than what we can actually see and that really that what we are here is really an illusionary plane. Now everybody's calling that the secret. The secret is in fact a universal law. I'm really, as I've said on my show, very excited because for years, for me, the real purpose of the Oprah Winfrey Show, when I first figured out that I'd been given this opportunity to speak in people's homes every day and that that was more than just a show, I understood that it was about teaching responsibility, about letting people know that you are responsible for your life. And so for years, I've been talking about some of the principles involved in the secret, and that is that the choices that you make every day and even more so than the choices, the way you think and then make the choices has everything to do with what your life is. And so, in essence, you are creating your reality every day. I have believed that and seen it work in my own life in so many ways. So I'm really excited that the secret has at least opened consciousness in such a way that other people have been able to at least see that light, that moment that says, you know what, I am more than my body. 
There are no accidents. Everything is happening for a reason. And I do have a lot of control over it. Many of you may not know that there is a secret behind the secret, and that for over 20 years, Esther Hicks and her husband Jerry. Le soleil est rare, et le bonheur aussi. L'amour s'égare au long de la vie. Le soleil est rare, et le bonheur aussi. Mais tout bouge au bras de Mélodie. Les murs d'enceinte du labyrinthe s'en trouvent sur l'infini. Le soleil est rare et le bonheur aussi. Mais tout bouge au bras de mélodie. Les murs enceinte du labyrinthe s'en trouvent sur l'infini. of Thriller. I mean, the music business isn't exactly going gangbusters, and yet you continue to sell records so well. Um, well, I, uh, every time I get a platinum album, 
uh, it's never been taken lightly on my behalf. I'm always honored, and uh, it's great thanks. You know, I'm very happy that the public enjoy what I do, and I'll continue to, uh, to put my heart into my work. Michael, why is it, do you think, that you're able to cross over when so many others aren't able to, from R&B to pop? I mean, it's like a natural for you. You have something within your records that everybody just loves. Boy, I, I, I couldn't say. I just created it, and uh, I'm honored that the public enjoy what I do. I couldn't uh, explain why the anatomy of why it happens. There's a formula? Not that I know of. I, it's my heart. I put my heart in it. You put your heart in it? Yeah. When you go about writing, uh, what happens? Um, songs come at the strangest times. I could be walking uh, through a park or something and it'll just hit you. Uh, it's, it's no set time that I write. They come. I, I wrote a song in the Concord, 58,000 feet in the air. In, uh, didn't have a tape recorder, so I had to remember it. And uh, <laughs> I got home and put it on tape, so they just come. Where do you think the gift came from? God. At this age, you're 24? 24? 30. 30? No, 24. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not performing. It's, uh, I could sleep on stage. I hate leaving the stage. I was raised on stage, and... Uh, when I'm not on stage, I'm not as happy, and everything seems to be foreign to me, or new. And I'm just now beginning to enjoy friendship, which is new for me. How do you feel, and how have you felt over the years, about the crowds who, I mean, even come up on stage and try to get near you? What, what goes through your mind when that happens? Um, that they enjoy what I do, and uh, I think it's wonderful if that's what they want to do, and it's a good thing. And uh, if I'm projecting something that is good, I think it's wonderful. But at the same time, I mean... As long as they don't hurt me. <laughs> but being the private kind of person that you are, I mean, some people love it, you know, there's some people love it when fans just whoosh, swoop over <laughs> I mean, them. It hurts to be mobbed. I bet it does. Like a spaghetti with a thousand hands coming at it. Yeah. Um... um I appreciate them enjoying my music and what I do. And uh, I guess that's their way of showing how much they love you. You were talking about being on stage, but what, what is it that goes through your mind when you perform? Um, I don't think about much. I, I don't think at all, actually. I'm feeling it. It's not a thing of thinking or mechanics. It's all spirit and feeling. And sometime, every once in a while, I'll think about the next flight, tomorrow's flight, or where we're going to be. But it's mainly I'm so much in, into the music, I don't think. Your music crosses over, you know, to all different styles. And that other um, artists haven't done this before. Well, I, like I said before, I create right from the heart. There's no um, chemistry that I know of. I just project what I feel. I was... The biggest influence for me was the 60s, uh, the Motown and the Beatles uh, and the Carpenters. And I don't know if all that had a big influence on me. I'm sure it did. And I just project how I feel. What's the very best thing, um, Michael, that, that could happen to you in terms of, of your career? 
to continue and to continue writing songs and I love to uh, to create I love, when I'm not creating I'm not as happy I think I get down and out I like to stay busy and uh, daydreaming and I'm thinking of you 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 I, I wanted to be a musician because it seemed, um, it seemed rebellious, it seemed subversive, it felt like uh, one could affect change um, to a form. It, uh, it was very hard to hear music when I was younger, you know. Um, when, I, when I was really young, you had to tune into AFN radio to hear the American 
records. Uh, there, there was no MTV, and there was no, it wasn't sort of wall-to-wall blanket music. And so therefore it had a kind of a, a, a call-to-arms kind of feeling to it. A, this is the thing that will change things. This is uh, a dead dodgy occupation to have. It's still, oh, produce signs of horror from people if you said, yeah, I'm, a, I'm in rock and roll. It's, my goodness. Now it's a career opportunity. And the internet is now, uh, uh, carries the flag of, of being subversive and possibly rebellious and chaotic and nihilistic and... What do you like about the f fact, what do you like about it is the fact that anyone can say anything or do anything? Uh, from my standpoint, from where I am, because of the, uh, by virtue of the fact that I am a pop singer yeah. and writer, um, I, I really, I really like, I embrace the idea that there's a new demystification process going on between the artist and the audience. Um, I think when you look back at, say, this last decade, there hasn't really been one single entity, artist, or group that have personified or become the brand name for the 90s. It, like it was starting to fade a little in the 80s and the 70s there were still definite artists in the 60s there were the Beatles and the Hendrix and in the 50s there was Presley. Now it's uh, subgroups and genres. It's hip-hop, it's girl power, it's a, a diff it's a communal kind of thing. Mm. It's about the community. It's becoming more and more about the audience because the point of having somebody who led the forces has disappeared because the vocabulary of rock is too well known and the internet has taken on that as I say um, and, uh, and so I find that a terribly exciting area so from my standpoint being a, a, an artist I like to see what the new construction is between artist and, and audience there is a breakdown there's a uh, personified I think by the uh, the rave culture of the last few years where the audience is at least as important as whoever is playing at the rave. Um, it's almost like the artist is to accompany the, the audience and what the audience are doing. And that feeling is very much permeating music and, and, and permeating the internet. But what is it specifically about the internet? I mean, anybody can say anything. You don't think that some of the claims being made for it are, are hugely exaggerated. I mean, when the telephone was invented, people made amazing claims. I know, the president, for example. the president at the time, when it was first invented, he was outrageous. He said he foresaw the day in the future when every town in America would have a telephone. Now, how dare he claim like that? Absolute bullshit. No, you see, I don't, I don't, I don't agree. I don't agree. I think the internet, I don't think we've even seen the tip of the iceberg. I think the potential of what the internet is going to do to society, both good and bad, is unimaginable. I think we're actually on the cusp of something exhilarating and terrifying. It's just a tool though, isn't it? No, it's not. No. No, it's an alien life form. What do you think, I mean, when you think then about... Is the there life on Mars? <laughs> yes, it's just landed here. But yeah. that's, it's a simply a different delivery system there. You're arguing about something more profound. Oh yeah, I'm talking about the, the, the actual context and the state of content is going to be so different to anything that we can really envisage at the moment. Where the interplay between the user and the provider will be so insimpatico, it's going to, it's going to crush our ideas of what mediums are all about. There are always two, three, four, five sides to every question. And uh, that, I believe, has produced such a medium as the internet, which absolutely establishes and shows us that we are living in 
total fragmentation. The idea that the piece of work is not finished until the audience come to it and add their own interpretation. And what the piece of art is about is the grey space. yesterday that I'm pushing I'm pushing toward the uncomfortable things that I had to do reaching out to people I feel a little shy exposed uh, investing money in, in, in these strange ideas that may not come to fruition uh, doing music doing all this whole thing the only way to access the unknown levels of I don't know, success or any kind of elevation is you have to go through the uncomfortable, the, dis the discomfort. It's all through the, the discomfort doors. There's no way around it. You can't avoid it. You have to go through the unknown. Unknown. The, unknown, the fear. That's where the unforeseen levels lie. Because if you don't, you're just going to stay in all... You, everything that you've been experiencing, you just keep staying here in this one little hell. But to progress into unforeseen vistas, you have to go through the unknown doors. You have to go through the fear, the discomfort. And you got to push. You got to push through, man. It's an illusion. It's a smoke door. You know what I mean? It's a, it's, a, it's a monster that you run up on. You find it was just a mannequin. But it feels real at the time. Yeah, of course. 
It does. It does. And there is a there is a chance you might get crushed. But I do think that people don't factor in grace. 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 If you're meant to do something, even though the odds seem insurmountable, if you're meant to do these things, some something will open up. You, you'll, you'll have some kind of capacity that you didn't realize you had. You'll meet some kind of contact because the factor of grace, because you are meant to do this thing. So because you're meant to do it, you'll also be supplied with elements to help you, you know, see the mission through. That's the thing I have to remind myself of. It's like, hey, you know, if you're meant to do this, you'll also be, have some grace. You'll be met with some grace that you can't see right now. So you really can't look at the odds. If you look at the odds, You'll be wrong. You're not factoring in that unforeseen
have acted and with what force. For example, I mean, this is, a, to my mind, one of the great suppressed stories of modern history. Uh, in August of 1619, a retreating Habsburg army camped in Ulm in southern Germany for a few days. They had were retreating from a campaign against Prague where they had successfully deposed the winter king and queen. And in this group of troops, of several thousand troops, was a young French adventurer, 22-year-old soldier of fortune. And uh, that night, in August, the night of August the 12th in Ulm, he slept and had a dream. <clears throat> And an angel appeared to this young man and said, the mastery of nature is achieved through measure and number. This was René Descartes. This was the founder of what is called materialism, rationalism. His marching orders were given to him in the same way that Mohammed got his marching orders. All of modern science is that was created at the behest of an angelic entity. Well, they're not talking about this at Caltech and MIT, let me tell you. So how many times in history have uh, voices taken the wheel? Uh, another example, one that's dear to my heart, is Alfred Russell Wallace, who was out collecting insects in Indonesia in the last century, and he got a fever on the island of Ternate, malaria. And in the midst of this fever, he understood the solution to the great problem of 19th century biology, which was called the problem of the species. And when he came down from this thing, and this was again an angelic deliverance in the height of this fever, he, uh, he couldn't figure out what to do with it, so he wrote a letter to the greatest scientist of the age, which was Charles Darwin in London. And when Darwin opened this letter, you know, just said, holy shit, 
this guy has scooped me. 20 years I've been working on the origins. Here it is in four paragraphs. Who is this guy? Well, so then it became the Darwin-Wallace theory of evolution for its first 50 years. And then Wallace dropped out of the picture because he disgraced himself by an interest in spiritualism. But uh, uh, you can understand why. Uh, if the guy got the original vision from an angel... This is part of what I was talking about last night with the time wave. The alchemical dreams of the 16th century, of the Philosopher's Stone and all that, never really died. Instead, the triumph of secularism and so-called modern science pushed the dream somewhat into the background. But after... James Clerk Maxwell and Helmholtz and those people discovered the electromagnetic fields in the 1870s. Uh, I mean, we are totally intellectually at home with the idea of electromagnetic radiation. We don't see what an occult thing it must have seemed to the 19th century where they had just risen to the place where they conceived everything mechanically hard objects whizzing through space, force, angular momentum, conservation of energy. Well, then comes Helmholtz and Clerk Maxwell and these people, and they say, oh no, there's a diffuse, invisible, vibratory medium that extends throughout all space, and just, you know, complete occult uh, kind of vocabulary. Well, that has now, because it could be formalized, through Maxwell's equations for magnetic radiation, somehow the occult side of it dropped away. For us, that's how you take the magic out of something, is you stride to the blackboard and write a tensor equation of the third degree, and then somehow you have it. So these fields became very mundane and could be used for radio and television and so forth. It took someone like Marshall McLuhan to point out
motherfucking money. Whatever. If you look at uh, uh, the statistics now of world wars, conflicts, skirmishes, and regions, it's it's diminished significantly. You know, like in orders of magnitude. This is the most peaceful time on the planet. It doesn't seem like when you look at the media. I, I get it. When you look at the media. You think, no, this is the most crazy Not time. even just based on the media either. Not just based on media either. It's government and it's banks now. And it's growing. And and all that shit is siphoning your money, your health, your life, your your uh your psyche, your well being, your privacy. No fucking privacy. They said we're heading into an era of absolutely zero privacy. Everything will just be wide open. You know, it's the way like that. it's getting like that now though. Well, you know, I just wish we knew what happened in the afterlife. Where is Bowie at right now? Where's Austin right now? My father, did they go on to another phase? Or did they completely get obliterated? Complete darkness, which is okay anyway. Think about it. You didn't miss life before you were born. You didn't want life. You, you weren't hankering for it. Or As far as you know, there was just zero. That's not so bad, I guess. Just going back, just being obliterated. I strongly suspect, I might be wrong, that when you die, you wake up and it's a relief. It's like getting off a roller coaster. It's like waking up from a dream. And you're like, oh my God, that was just a dream. You know how you have dreams now? And you wake up and you're relieved that it was just a dream? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just like, oh my God, I think that's what happens when you die. I think you wake up from this and you're like... Oh, I forgot. You know, I, I was in a virtual reality hologram. Time seemed to go much slower. You wake up and you're in a pod. Oh! And you look around and if someone comes and escorts you back to the council where everything's luminous and, and utopian. And you realize, oh, I was just an artificial construct or that was, that was a lower vibrating soul realm. You wouldn't have an attachment. Because you'd, you'd see that was a, a temporal illusion. And you just go back to your, to your life in the elevated realms. And, and what is that? That's my question. Like, what's my purpose going to be on that side? Who can say? I mean, it could be, it could be multiform. It could be any of mind-bottling purposes. In, in and a, what's going to be necessary on that side? Who knows, bro? They, they, they could be operating in correspondences that are so elevated our minds can't even conceive maybe you know they could they could just be playing a game it could just be literally that simple this could be the past for them like say on this earth we keep proceeding and in, and in 5,000 years we evolve to a level of like ethereal teleportation where we go off into sublime realms one of the pastimes could be entering into the past Hey, do you want to go to 2016 where there was racism and there was strife and people had to work for money? But you could assume this mission on some total recall shit. You could be a musician or, uh, you know, an author or a poet and struggle in the culture and help shape it and potentially die or succeed and be torn down by, you know, public adulation. You could become a homeless person, completely crushed under the auspices of class and, and wealth. You might do it. It's, it could just literally be a game of our, of our future selves. Just a, a, a pastime where people go back and learn about how things... We could be learning right now. 
that's part of the the life there to learn and and add to the culture so you realize how lucky you are in this sublime future. That's real. That would be ill to choose missions or to to know what your life was going to be like before it actually um, before it actually came. That would be yeah. wild. To the point where like you know what type of life you're going to live. Literally select like Total Recall. Like, you know what? Yeah. I want to be a divine poet. I want to be an architect. Who the hell would choose a regular mundane life? Yeah, that's not true. Yeah, I would not choose that. And that's, see, when you ask that question, that's what makes me think that it's not a choosing thing, but it's a, it's a program. Who would choose to be a slave? So there's either reincarnation or it's a program where you're given an assignment. Actually, you might choose to be a slave. It's not real. I want to get whipped. I want to get... I don't think this plane is real. It's real, but I don't. But it's not. But it's not though. Science has gotten to a point where science, outside of mysticism, showing you, telling you it wasn't real thousands of years ago, science can show you that it's all empty space, just frozen. It looks physical, but if you look at it under a microscope, all you're seeing is empty space. So what's what's really real? You know. What is what is what is an hour on the other side of the veil in the sublime regions is a lifetime here. So it it's is. a holographic hour. Isn't that your thing? The holographic hour? The holographic hour. Yeah. <laughs> but I do have I do have a suspicion that this is a riddle. This realm that we're in is some form of a holographic conundrum that we solve as we evolve and that's when the door opens maybe it opens onto a higher vibrating hologram well, I just think you'll be around energy or I don't know you know you're I always get the feeling of flying constantly just in motion and moving and you literally can pass from this from this plane and just step out into a more intricate confounding riddle yeah it's it's just too weird this is already weird where you walk in into restaurants and you you meet people synchronistically. You know there's a coincidence. There, there's there's a hint of a mystery. There's this, a if light. If you're in tune to it, if you're, if you're in, in tune. tune, that's the shit that fucks me up sometimes. Is that certain people really believe this shit is real? That's the construct of physical reality is is all there is. I remember living like that, but I remember asking questions too. Though I don't ever remember taking it all like. You know, this is just what it is. Like, no, there was always something more. There was definitely always something more. You remember the first time we had the Kabbalion or the Seven Spiritual Laws of Success? Remember that early feeling? Y'all for tuning in for another one. 
number 15 of the Emerald Lane Podcast out of Los Angeles, California. My name is Sonny Coates. Thank you all for, uh, thank you for taking the time to correspond and send your report, your well wishes. I must thank the Most High for keeping us here, me being here right now, and for the great David Bowie. I wish all of y'all well. Stay safe until next time. Get your vibe.